0: So, was it just last night I texted you and said, oh yeah, by the way, Logan, I forgot
1: that this is one of the most depressing movies ever made. Yeah, and I, so I had not ever seen it before. You know, I I had heard that it was sad, but I super underestimated, like, the characters don't get a single break the entire movie. (laughs) Right, just just let's just.
0: I'm just gonna give give the overview and kind of spoil everything about *Grave of the Fireflies* right from the beginning. This is a movie about a brother and sister. Like the little girl's got to be like four, maybe five, and you know the, the brother's probably like twelve or thirteen. So a brother and sister in Japan while it's getting bombed by the Allies, and so they're going from you know bomb shelter. Their mom gets blown up, and basically, you know, kind of, I mean, she she lives just enough to suffer, and then dies, and the brother's trying to hide the mom's death from the sister, and then they starve to death. That's the movie. Yep. And
1: it's a cartoon.
0: Yes. (laughs) Ah, and just, it's heartbreaking, because... Oh, you just, you feel so bad for the brother trying to protect the sister and the, so did you watch the dubbed version with American actors speaking or did you watch the subtitled version with the original Japanese actors speaking?
1: Yes. So normally my philosophy is if I am watching a movie that isn't a foreign language, well, if it's a live action movie, I will 100% of the time watch it in the original language with subtitles. I have no problem with reading animated movies. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, depending on the voice acting, but the Studio Ghibli movies, usually the voice acting in the English dub versions is good enough that I will, I'll just watch the dub version. Plus if, you know, in the, as far as Studio Ghibli movies go, sometimes for the English dub, they have like A-list actors doing the voices. So yeah. That's a roundabout way of saying that in this movie, I'd watched it uh, dubbed in English.
0: Okay. Because uh, I, I did watch the Japanese version with subtitles. I, so we've technically watched different versions of the movie, which is kind of interesting too. But I was just going to say, like, how adorable the little girl's voice was. But I'm guessing the American version did the same thing. It's a cute little girl voice. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. I don't know. I still feel like it's, it's somehow more adorable when it's the little girl voice speaking Japanese and I can't understand what she's saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess but yes either either way it's just heartbreaking and again as far as the plot goes i wasn't kidding that's basically it and, and if anything i left out more horrible things like so when the mom dies they go to another city to live with uh their aunt who at first seems like more than willing to take them in but it's not long before she's just like even though we're in the middle of world war ii and we're getting bombed on you're just not pulling your weight around here. We can't afford to keep you around.
1: This teenager shows up with his like yeah four year old sister. Right. Their mom just got firebombed to death, and right. she's like, you know, yeah, your life is it's it's hard, but you know, you should get a job or something at least. Like you're kind of freeloading, right?
0: And I I don't even know what they would get. And then and then she makes him sell his mom's kimonos to buy buy rice, and then like gives them crap for not appreciating the rice she made for them, which was bought by selling his own mom's kimono. And you're just so mad at the lady. Of course, then you get mad at the kid when it's basically his own pride that prevents him. He should crawl on his hands and knees back to that place to stay. And there's a ration system in place, which I'm pretty sure reflects reality at the time. But he kind of is just not willing to get in and part of that, so they're kind of having a harder time find food, and they just have money in the bank. That again, I was kind of mad at him. Why did he wait so long to go and get the money out of the bank? And so they end up living in this kind of. I actually just thought it looks almost. It basically looks like a hobbit hole, where it's kind of like the little thing in the ground. Online, they called it a uh, abandoned bomb shelter, which I guess would make sense. It just seems
1: kind of middle of nowhere for a bomb shelter, in, though. What did they call it in the in the subtitled version? Because in the dubbed version, they. They explicitly say it's a bomb shelter. I didn't see them
0: say call it that. I didn't see them call it anything. Oh, it's just the place they showed up and started living.
1: No, yeah, no. In the in the dub version, they they refer to it as the shelter. Like it's it is a bomb shelter.
0: Uh, Okay, and if they did say shelter, maybe I just thought like, yeah, it's like a shelter. I didn't think like anything that gives you shelter. I wasn't thinking like specifically a bomb shelter if they use the word shelter. And so that's worth mentioning, though, too, as far as where the movie gets its title. So because they're kind of out in the woods in this abandoned shelter, it's really dark at night. And the brother has the idea. We got these uh, mosquito nets and stuff to keep bugs out. Well, we can also keep bugs in with those. So they go and play a game where they gather as many fireflies as they can. And they bring them inside the net in the little shelter with them. And that's what kind of gives them a little basically night lights as they're hanging out their first night in these, you know, this little cave shelter thing. And so it's kind of a sweet little moment, but they don't last very long. And of course, then they're kind of away from nature and water and anything else. So basically the next day, all of these fireflies are just dead. And the little girl digs a hole and buries them, making a grave of the fireflies. And then that's also the moment too, where she mentions, I made a grave for them, just like the grave for our mother. And that's the yeah. moment the brother realizes, oh, she's figured out that our mom's dead, or actually that the aunt had told him that their mom was dead and the brother thought up to this point that she was ignorant of it so he breaks down crying and how well she actually kind of handles it in this moment but again it's kind of that that little girl disconnect where she doesn't fully appreciate what's happening and it's again it's it's heartbreaking which goes for everything in this movie
1: yes and just because this is an animated movie and the two you know main characters are both children this is it's not like a children's movie it's not a feel good movie like when the mom dies, it you know, she's wrapped up in bandages, and then, like, the next scene is her dead with maggots and flies around her body as the yes. doctor is talking about, like, yeah, I'm not going to unwrap her. You don't want to see her right now. And then they throw her corpse on a pile and burn them all. Yes, I would say this is a movie
0: for, even though it's for, it's for adults, even though, like, it it yes. has the vibe of, a, it's not like it's an edgy movie or anything. It's it's almost done in a style. That would ostensibly be for children, but the content is just very mature and a rough, rough watch for kids.
1: Yeah, but that's that's true of pretty much all of the Japanese style studio stuff. Jibli- yeah, okay. Yeah, well, the Studio Ghibli stuff specifically, and admittedly, this is the first Studio Ghibli movie I've seen that is not a Hayao Miyazaki movie.
0: Right, almost to the point that I forgot they were different things. Like
1: I, always, I always see them as one and the same. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, like, even movies that aren't necessarily, you know, what would be considered mature subject matter, it's, like, it's usually heavier stuff and, like, intellectual stuff that, even if, you know, it's not, like, scary or disturbing to kids, they just kind of wouldn't really understand what's going on. Right.
0: Like, Princess Mononoke's
1: got some kind of weird, creepy stuff, but it's nothing that's inappropriate or, like, the kid well, couldn't there's watch. there's, like, a... There's a guy that gets his head shot clean off of his body by an arrow in that movie. Okay. And I'm, there's, that's actually that's my favorite Hayao Miyazaki movie, okay. Princess Mononoke. I, I I saw it once in the
0: theater and I thought it was just kind of too weird. But I think it was actually my first of those that I'd seen. Period. So uh, I don't think I was ready for it. Um. Anyway. So yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. If, if you think of the Miyazaki stuff, those are kind of surreal. Green with the Fireflies is much more rooted, despite it it does have. Actually, so this is is worth mentioning, too. Not that you can come back to what you you were going to say. But the kind of framing device. So it starts off. Like, the literal first line of the movie is September 21st, 1945. That was the night I died. So I almost think it helps lessen the blow and keeps you from sobbing hysterically at the end of the movie. Is that they tell you right up. You would think that. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, Logan. (laughs) 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 <laughs> uh, yeah yeah it's rough so anyway it's less of a shock you know from the beginning that the kids are going to die and the, the basically it's actually been starting with their ghosts. so basically what you, you see the older brother says i died they show him his his dead body getting found by subway cleaners and oh this kid's dead too and then you see the brother reunited with the ghost of his sister and then as they're kind of traveling in the spirit world with fireflies, you kind of notice every time it's their ghost, they're surrounded by fireflies. And yeah. then they kind of look back and see themselves months earlier. So it's almost kind of like the ghost of the boy and the girl are watching the actual events that led to their death and can just kind of this really neat and artistic and heartbreaking way. Yeah, this movie's super sad.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those ones that once you see it once, it's probably going to be a while before I revisit okay. this one. But yeah. yeah, And I had seen it before. <laughs> and i don't remember
0: it being i I mean obviously i knew it was sad and depressing but i kind of forgotten all the details but it's probably been 15 years or more since i'd seen it uh so i I should mention real quick that so it's based on a short story that's semi-autobiographical so basically the author of the story that this film is based off of well obviously survived to write the story but did have sisters who died during this time. One of malnutrition, one got sick, and uh, her stepdad or whatever had died in the bombing itself. So, this, the author of the original story did live through essentially this to, to write the story, which again is just so harrowing. Now, I actually couldn't follow exactly in the movie. They do mention a couple of towns. So I didn't know exactly what was going on. In my memory, I actually thought this movie was set during the fallout of the nuclear bombings, but that is not the
1: case. This is kind of just the initial fire bombings leading up to that. Yeah, which is like, you know, that that stuff happened throughout the, in, well, not the entire war, but basically... Once we got close as, enough. Yeah, as Allied planes got within range of, of Japan. Yeah, it was just like in Europe, wanton destruction of entire cities. And yeah, I I also kind of thought that it was going to be just given the that they're you know in Japan in 1945 that oh okay we're going to see something or they're going to refer to uh, you know the atomic bombings, but they happen not only off screen, but our character doesn't even know about it until he goes to the bank and tries to withdraw the money or whatever, and what, like a random guy at the bank is like oh yeah no like we surrendered to the Americans right. But he had no idea that it happened. Right, and even the surrender is all
0: he knows about. He doesn't know about the nuclear bombings in the other part of Japan, right? right. So the specific incident that we're dealing with in the movie is the bombing of Kobe in Japan. And it looks like it was actually bombed a couple times. And I, I got the feel. so it was bombed in March and then also in June. I got the feeling that the movie was talking about the June bombing, but I forget why I think that now off the top of my head. But the kid dies in September, so that would give him a few months. But if it was the March bombings, it would have been about the same thing. It just take longer until he dies in September. But, so, the reason this was a target, because obviously they, the Americans seemed to have no problem killing civilians, at least having that it was collateral damage. But the, it was very strategic, though, why they were bombing Kobe. So it was the sixth biggest city in Japan. But specifically, this was a, it was the largest port in Japan. And this is where a lot of the shipbuilding was happening. And a lot of, you know, basically... If you wanted to cripple Japan's ability to make war, Kobe was a prime target. And not only did all this industry that was supporting the war effort happen in Kobe, a lot of the houses were made of wood. So it was just super easy to destroy this city in, in an attempt to cripple Japan. And so our kids in this film are, again, on the receiving end of all of this and having to flee and their mom is killed and all that before they go off to kind of a nearby city and starve to death. So that's specifically why
1: Kobe was chosen. And they, I, I think there's a character in the movie who talks about like, well, actually now I'm having trouble remembering if it was or, this let, or if it was uh, Letters from Yojima, but they are talking about The factories, like they're bombing the factories so the rest of the factories have to work harder and they can't keep up. Oh, right. I forget which movie that was too. (laughs) (laughs) I guess when I watched them on back-to-back days this weekend. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind, you know, as we've talked about several times, is the technology is kind of in this, like, sweet spot to cause the most destruction. So, like, we have 500-pound bombs that can make huge craters and, and level, you know, these whatever building you want but like the best way to to aim them is to look through a scope and like try and make it hit the right spot. So if you want to bomb a factory, it's not like today where you get a laser guided or a GPS guided bomb and you drop one from miles and miles away and you know, you hit just what you want to hit. If you want to bomb a factory, you know, you have to send a whole squadron of bombers and drop a whole bunch of bombs hoping that, you know a few of them land where they're supposed to well that's that's the term carpet bombing right yeah so yeah you you know you, you're gonna drop a, a ton of bombs you're gonna guarantee that you hit what you hit but also these factories they're not in the countryside they are in a city and so when you drop bombs true on a factory, so it's
0: not like we're specifically targeting civilians it's more just like they're gonna get hit while we try to bomb this factory
1: no but we also didn't really care because the more you know any amount of destruction that you cause is going to demoralize, right? Right. You know the population. So, in the eyes of well, both sides, both the allies and the Axis powers, did this war too. But it's kind of a win-win. Like, yeah, we're going to blow up the factory, and we'll also probably destroy a decent chunk of the city as well. And you know, won't that make them, the enemy, pretty sad? Right. And and the
0: sad reality of war is if and again i don't con- condone this but the rationale is there if by killing a certain number of civilians we drop their morale to the point they re- refuse to fight anymore then we just save those american lives yep. so that's kind of the a calculation that goes into when you're dealing with uh wars of this kind now what the movie i would say letters from iwo jima didn't shy away from japan's role in instigating the conflict Versus *Grave of the Fireflies*. Now, again, it is fo- it, it is focused on the innocence of these children who are innocent, but it doesn't even hint at the idea that Japan initiated the conflict that they found themselves on the receiving end of.
1: Right, but that's kind of like that's kind of the terrible thing is that well, Japan did instigate the conflict, but you know it it doesn't matter. Whether they did or didn't, because these people, number one, didn't have a say in it. Correct. Number two, they, if given the chance, would probably be like, "No, I don't want to go to war with the Americans. Like, can't we just hang out here and, you know, eat our rice balls and and have the fruit drops?" Right.
0: So uh, we we did mention a little bit in the in the episode on letters from Iwo Jima, but basically the Japanese plan was to. Hunker down and wait for the Americans and we were just going to if they're gonna take our country They're gonna kill darn near every last one of us to get it was kind of the plan and It wasn't until even after we were we're again destroying the city of Kobe dropping multiple bombs and it wasn't until The second nuclear bomb that they were like, oh, this is a thing Okay, fine. We surrender like just it, it was yep. basically just surprised them with a weapon of unpre literally unprecedented destruction in the history of human warfare. Yep. It's continued to this day where we are we are the only country to has ever used nuclear devices in actual warfare and no one has no one has sense. At time of recording. Oh shit. <laughs> you might have us on that one. Okay. For those of you in the afterscape listening to this <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks for tuning in <laughs> uh save a bowl or rat stew for us
0: uh yeah t- pre-taping is uh
1: dangerous these days <laughs> yeah well and the uh you know just talking about the amount of nationalistic fervor that uh i guess that's a nice way to put it that we expected to encounter like, in an amphibious assault like land invasion of Japan type situation they were estimating like we were going to lose a million people right and that's not counting everyone we had already you know all the American service members that had died so far right and that's just allied right that
0: doesn't even get to the Japanese civilians
1: and and Japanese oh, service yeah yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that yeah the allies expected to lose a million people in an invasion of Japan,
0: and I and I haven't done a lot of research on this, but you also got the whole idea, you know. There's, did we also want to send a signal to the Russians to what they were going to be dealing with, and to what extent is that true? To what extent were we trying to push? Yeah, were those estimates hyperinflated to get Truman to pull that trigger? And and, and I don't know. I'm just saying, it's probably hard to ever truly know what was going
1: on in their minds here. Yeah, maybe. I, I think for sure, using the atomic bomb was a signal to the russians like hey we're on the same side in this fight but just so you know this is what we got right right of
0: course then they quickly got their own as well and right my understanding is too during the, the 50s the famous bomb tests during the 1950s the weapons we have now are astronomically more powerful than the ones we dropped on japan is that correct oh yeah like hundreds or thousands of magnitude greater right
1: yeah, so the Fat Man and Little Boy were 15 kilotons and 21 kilotons. And uh I mean, the the Russians in 1961 detonated a bomb called the Tsar Bomb that was 50 megatons. So Oh, right. That's
0: that's like that's like 3,000-fold.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and we don't even I don't even think we we really measure nuclear weapons in kilotons anymore. It's it's pretty much always at least a me- right, megaton. Right. Right.
0: Oh and I should have done a little more research on it. So my mom's dad was in occupied Japan after the war cuz like there was a US military presence in Japan post World War 2 and my grandpa was one of them. But I don't I I don't have much more about that other than uh you know I have a few pictures of him in Japan and actually I I think I even have like oh in my closet over here a I think it's just nail clippers, but it's, it's like, jet, but it's from Japan, and it's something my grandpa, you know, brought back, you know, sixty, seventy years ago.
1: Oh wow! Um, yeah, we wish I knew more about it, but he died before I was born, so. Yeah, my dad's dad was not in occupied Japan, but was in the Philippines. Oh, okay. Uh, during World War okay. II, so part of the island hopping stuff that we were talking about in the letters from Iwo Jima episode.
0: So we had talked about the movie here not taking. Blame for Japan's role in initiating the conflict, which again, when you're talking about children, you're not necessarily obliged to hold them accountable per se. But I was watching something online talking about Japan didn't necessarily see their actions during World War II as aggressive and offensive. They thought they were maybe kind of. Defending the rights of their island to expand. And if you're going to basically stop us from expanding, well, you Europeans have been doing that and Americans have been doing that for 100 years. Now it's time for us to get right. ours. So if you're going to stop it, even if you're trying to take back something we took, well, that's you attacking us and being aggressive toward us. And we're just defending what we rightfully yeah. took, basically, and the rights of us to be what you have been for the last 100 years.
1: Right. And so you can. Even if you, you know, don't necessarily sympathize with them, you can understand why they would feel that way, which I think is something it's a lot of times overlooked. I think a lot of times portrayed as, oh, we just it's this unprovoked, unwarranted attacks. And, you know, they had absolutely no reason to do this and they're just being greedy but when you look at it from their point of view, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, oh, all this European expansionism is fine. But the second we try and expand a little bit now, <laughs> obviously, today we would say, well, none of that is OK. Correct. But
0: but at the time in 1945, you're trying to stop them. It's, it's arguably hypocritical other than right. they had directly attacked us versus, you know, it's not like we we're just going to, oh, you packed our buddy China, which, again, and so much is tied to economic interests, even to today. And, and that's a whole mess we won't go into here right now. What were the conditions of the Japanese surrender? That's probably worth mentioning. We did get them to surrender unconditionally, which we kind of basically weren't going to stop until it was unconditional surrender. It wasn't going to be like, oh, we'll surrender if we get to keep X or whatever. It's like, no, 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 you surrender and then we'll talk.
1: Yeah, let's see. So this is not one of the uh, conditions, but you can see the place that they signed the Japanese surrendered to the Americans is on the, uh, the USS Missouri, which is a battleship that is anchored uh, in Pearl Harbor today that is now a uh, museum, which uh, also the Missouri is featured in the 2012 documentary Battleship. Uh.
0: (laughs) Did you say documentary? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) So I'm I'm still a bit confused on the surrender here, because I feel like we didn't stick it to them like we did with Germany. I mean, Germany, you have literally Germany split into East and West. But Japan didn't have to go yeah. to anything like that. There wasn't like Germany got or Russia didn't get part of Japan
1: right because well, and I think that's because you know the the Pacific Theater, it was like us and like the Australians, you know there's not really a rivalry there. Australia isn't you know wasn't going to be like, well, I think we deserve half <laughs> of you know Japan right. and we want you know Korea as well right and and you know China wasn't a wasn't a world power. Well, they weren't the world power that they are today. So one thing that I wanted to bring up real fast is the existence, I guess, of the Japanese self-defense force. Oh, what's that? Well, it's, it's their military, but it's called, they don't have like an army and an air force and a navy. They have a ground self-defense force, a maritime self-defense force, and an air self-defense force. You mean now
0: or back in during World War II?
1: No, even to this day. So it says, uh, yeah, the trauma of World War II produced strong pacifist sentiments among the nation. Uh-huh. In addition, under Article 9, the 1947 Constitution, Japan forever renounces war as an instrument for settling international disputes and declares that Japan will never again maintain land, sea, or air forces or other war potential.
0: Basically like, we'll defend ourselves, but we will never be the aggressors ever again.
1: Yeah, it says, later cabinets interpreted these provisions as not denying the nation the inherent right to self-defense and with the encouragement of the United States developed the Japanese self-defense force step by step. So basically, Japan said, we don't want a military anymore. Huh. And America said, you guys are pretty close to China. So (laughs) maybe you guys could have like a self, you have to call it an army. Right, right.
0: Self-defense force. Right, but yeah, you you don't want to just be taken over, then we have to come and save you. Right. Yeah. Yes, which kind of makes sense because Japan is one of our strongest allies to this day. But when we're over in the Middle East fighting, it's not with a lot of Japanese help because they're basically pacifists now. Like their public policy is one of pacifism.
1: Right. But, well, not this trip, but when I was here in 2013 and 2014, I would see Japanese dudes out here from time to time. Because in 2001, uh, the Anti-Terrorism Special Measures Law, which was passed in October of 2001, allows the self-defense force to contribute itself to international efforts to the prevention and eradication of terrorism. Okay, okay. So, yeah, even Japan's getting in on the, uh, you know, the global war on terrorism Okay, stuff. but they're going to have a pretty high
0: threshold to what triggers them to join the action.
1: Right, so they're basically the, you know, the justification there is, well, we're not invading a country. Right. We're help helping to prevent terrorist attacks. Yeah. Right, yeah. So that's what that's about. But yeah, Japan technically doesn't have an army, which I think is kind of interesting. And as and that like even to this day and because of World War II.
0: Right. But again, has anybody ever paid a higher price during war than as a sorry, as a nation than than Japan with uh Yeah, I don't know. No one else has had two nukes dropped on them. Right. Yeah, as of this recording. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. At time of recording. <laughs> and you know, to be honest, had we not, you know, if we if we would have had the atomic bomb earlier, I think we for sure would have been using that in Europe as well. It's kind of a just kind of a timing thing. You
0: yeah, it's kind of the, the kind of the, yeah, the sad reality of it. And uh, right. Yeah. There's a, there's a world where we dropped it on Berlin, right? You know, a hypothetical. We just had it. I mean, it was brand spanking new, right? When we dropped it like. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Crazy. Okay, yeah, that ends World War II for us, and we'll pick back up next Tuesday in the post-war era.